Welcome back to Civil Action with Brian Kabatek and me, Sean Kernicki. Hi, Sean. How are you today? Not bad. Not so, bad. Sean and I, uh, at least once a week, take four interesting cases from the California Court of Appeal, California Supreme Court, Ninth Circuit, uh, sometimes the United States Supreme Court, when they actually have civil cases that come down, which are very few this year, by the way, Sean. I don't know if you notice it. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, in this, at least this term, very few civil cases of interest, which is probably good because just leave our civil cases alone, Supreme Court. Thank you very right. much. Right. They're not going to, they're not doing any, doing any favors for us. So. Right. Yeah. That's true. And we do this on a weekly basis to talk about cases. I call it uh, 20 minutes of law school and keeping up to date on what's going on with the, uh, with the law in California. Today, we're going to cover exclusively, exclusively arbitration cases. That's our theme today. Arbitration. And there's a consistent theme, I think, amongst the first three cases we're going to talk about. So first, we're going to talk, we, well, we have two cases where we talk about unconscionability and the unenforceability of arbitration agreements. So those are both very interesting, both very egregious examples. And then we're going to talk about a PAGA arbitration case and about how you can't arbitrate PAGA claims. Uh, so those first three cases demonstrate why it's important to fight against arbitration clauses. And then the last case we're going to cover has to do with reviewing the uh, uh, reviewing arbitration awards, vacatur of arbitration awards. And this is an illustration of why it is important in the context of two businesses that are in dispute, sophisticated businesses contracting to arbitrate. But because this podcast is mostly for plaintiff lawyers or people who are interested in plaintiff work, rule number one about arbitration, arbitration is bad. Bad? Bad, okay. Okay. bad. And we're not fans of, of pre-dispute arbitration. When somebody has a dispute and they decide after the fact to go to arbitration, I have no problem with that. When people, uh, when two large corporations or equally suited businesses decide that they want to arbitrate, if there's a dispute in the future, I have no problem with that. But a lot of times arbitration is just bad, 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 and undermines the right to a jury trial, undermines people's sort of basic fundamental rights, at least in my opinion. Now, Getting off my soapbox, let's talk about. So we're not going to end it there. We're not just going to arbitration bad at the end of the podcast. Let's let's just say that. Let's just say this: that the first three cases I think illustrate uh, a move that we've seen with the courts away from arbitration. And uh, for those people who are aware of a case called Lee versus Yellow Cab, which did away with um, contributory negligence, which meant if you were negligent at all as a plaintiff, you had no right to recover. Uh, Lee versus Yellow Cab came out, I believe, in the '60s. Before that. Courts were making efforts to do inroads into um, contributory negligence to give people an opportunity to have their case heard and uh, and to recover. And I'm seeing that now with arbitration. I think and and just so we're clear for, for people that. that don't understand what that is. Prior to that, if you were one percent, two percent at fault for, let's say, an accident, that's it. You can recover, right? Any, anything. You couldn't recover anything. Anything. That right. Anything. That's wild. So uh, where can people find us? Uh, they could find us in our office here in downtown. They could just walk right. out, walk in. Yeah, no appointments. No, I'm kidding. You can find us online at kbklawyers.com. Uh, we do other podcasts. We do a lot of seminars, webinars, things like that. So keep up with it. Um, if you have questions, if you have comments, if you want to chat, you know, let us know. We're just hanging around waiting for your phone call here. So our first case today, Doherty versus Roseville Heritage Partners, is a perfect example of why arbitration sucks. Uh, and the facts in this case under, underline exactly that reason. So uh, back in 2017, the, the plaintiff um, who is now representing her dead father's estate or dead father's wrongful death case, rather, uh, the father was 89 years old. He had advanced dementia 
And he had just been kicked out of a residential facility because of his aggressive behavior, which is not uncommon right. with some people who have um, either dementia, Alzheimer's and, and sad things like that, end of life kind of things. So she shows up at the um, at the facility that had been recommended to her. And the first thing she's told is that they were the only feasible care facility for her father. And then her father is at that moment on the way via ambulance to the facility. Before she's even agreed to anything, before they even admitted him there. Yeah, so she's in a tough spot. Right, you know, nowhere. He, he needs to get moved as soon as possible because he spent the last two weeks in a hospital uh, as a result of getting kicked out. And the the, what they, apparently what they say to her is they say, that's great. I'm glad your dad's coming here. We're going to take good care of her. We just have a little paperwork for you to fill out ahead of time. And then what do they hand her? They give her a 70-page packet. Of, of documents to read and sign. And included in that was an arbitration agreement. And the arbitration agreement, though, was conspicuous and obvious, wasn't it? It was a, it was separately, right? It was separately bound and it had like a little a big header on it, right? No, it was it was buried on pages 43 through 45 of the packet right in the middle somewhere. Right. And then the the plaintiff testified that no one ever told her that she didn't have to sign it. No one told her what it was. No one explained it to her. And in fact, the representative of the facility later testified that she herself had never read the arbitration agreement. Right. It's kind of hard to tell someone what something is if you don't know what it is. And apparently the, the argument from the facility was, well, you didn't have to sign it. And um, the person who was the representative of the facility said that in her entire career, only one person refused to sign it. And she um, they, they still admitted the patient anyways. And, but none of that was told to the plaintiff in this case. But look, it's OK, because the plaintiff here who was you know, worried sick about her 89 year old father, who was probably dying and in terrible mental health. Uh, she was thinking clearly, right? She said that she was in great shape and, and nope, thinking clearly. Nope, and she, nope, no, no, that nope. didn't happen. She was oh, a, okay. she was a train wreck. She was a mess. She was crying the whole time. And apparently, though, one of my favorite provisions of this agreement was that it also provided that the facility itself, upon 30 days written notice, uh, could change the agreement any way they wanted to. And that then the, the, the resident would have 30 days upon receipt of the amendment to terminate the agreement, which is code for you're out. Leave. Yeah, get a, get the hell out. So yeah, let, let's not even start to talk about how the uh, how the agreement is screwed up. But well, let's talk uh, about the rule here. What's the rule in order to find an agreement uh, unenforceable? You have to show California requires two two prongs of of unconscionability, be right? Procedural and substantive. substantive. And you don't need you need to you need both, but they don't have to be to the same degree. You just right. need a little bit of both. And in fact, I think the law is pretty clear that that if one is more than the other, right. that might make up for right. any kind of deficit. Uh, and here the court pretty quickly disposes of the procedural unconscionability because procedural unconscionability is uh, an adhesion contract, for example. One-sided adhesion contract. You know, look, procedural looks at the manner in which it's signed, the type of agreement it is. Substantive is you look at the actual uh, provisions. So here, you know, woman, father dying, she's an emotional wreck, uh, one-sided contract, no ability Lack to change it. Lack of negotiation. It. Yeah, exactly. no explanation. You know, that's a slam dunk here. So let's move on to some of our favorites from the substantive unconscionability. So what do you what do you find amusing in here? What do I find specifically amusing in here? 
I mean, not not to make make light of this. It's actually terrible. But this is us on our kind of soapbox, justifiably explaining why these things are terrible. But number oh. Oh, here's one. Uh, the agreement called for uh, following the AAA commercial arbitration rules. Right. Because this is a commercial it's transaction. It's a commercial isn't transaction. It? Right. 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 <laughs> when anytime you check a, a dying relative into a nursing facility, that's a commercial transaction, right. isn't it? Yeah. One of the issues with the commercial rules is that it doesn't provide for interrogatories or requests for admissions, for example. So right. basic discovery stuff. But oh. wait, there's more. Okay, what else is there? Well, there is a provision in here limiting remedies, for example. Limiting how? Like limiting elder abuse remedies. Like the very statute that's designed to protect the victim here? Right. Oh, wow. And and yeah, that's right. It limits, uh, there's no authority to award exemplary or punitive damages. That's the whole point of the elder abuse statute. It includes treble damages, and it's very important. It's an important tool. It protects the most vulnerable members of our society, and this thing... And that's, says, a, no, that's that doesn't important... Apply. We're, we're kind of making light of it, but that's an important rule of law, which is you can't waive substantive claims in an arbitration agreement. Right. That renders it uh, de facto, uh, sub- substantively unconscionable, correct? Yeah. Yeah. And then uh, there's another provision that says that, look, if if the consumer here can't pay it, uh, that's fine. You have to submit an affidavit to us that says why you can't pay it and then we'll pay for it. But then we'll get to decide the company will get to decide how many uh, arbitrators to use. They'll get to decide if it's a one or three. And in this family. case, apparently they asked them to pay and they never actually posted the money. <laughs> right. That's so. But ultimately, what the court concludes in this case is that when you have multiple defects, in an arbitration agreement, it's strong evidence of a systemic attempt to not only have arbitration, but to deprive people of their rights. So great case. Good example. Let's move on to an equally good case, an equally good example. This is Denison versus Roslyn Capital. Uh, by the way, the first the first case, these are uh, court of appeal cases that we're talking about today. The first yeah. case uh, was out of, I think, the 50th DCA. This Ventura case, County. This no, case. Sacramento. I'm sorry. Yeah. yeah. This case is out of the second DCA Division 8. And this case involves uh, a fellow by the name of William Dennison, uh, who, wa- who made four purchases of basically gold and silver coins. Precious metals. From a television advertiser. Yeah, and and he's an 82-year-old Navy veteran. He's watching TV. Maybe you've seen this if you sit there and watch watch Fox News like I do most of the time. Do you? Yeah, all day long. I just sit there in my boxers, watch Fox News. No, I'm kidding. Uh, but but you do see this sometimes on TV. They're clearly preying on old people where they advertise about how the I have a terrible is... visual of you right now. <laughs> well, do you have a bowl of Captain Crunch while you're watching oh, TV? That's, that's the dream right there. Um, but no... <laughs> They they talk about how the market's so volatile and it's all going to shit. I have shit. to get it out of my head. This is driving. This is awful. It's it's hard. It's reality. You got to face reality. Um, and and they say that the market's volatile and the only way to secure your future is by investing in precious metals. And this poor man, he calls them. He talks to some guy named Mister Smith. He's on the phone with Mister Who Smith. Who describes himself as an expert, expert, by the way. Who's there to help him? Right. He's there to he's help. He's there him. to help him and sells him over the course of a few months. Four purchases of gold or silver coins uh, totaling $200,000, so $50,000 at a time. But before the first purchase, without even telling him anything, he says, we're going to send you some paperwork and then you send the check back to us. But they don't tell him that he's going to be signing an arbitration agreement. So apparently he signs an arbitration agreement. Right, but then he got the arbitration agreement, Sean. It was probably open and obvious to him and clear that he was signing an arbitration agreement, right? Large text. I mean, he's a sophisticated guy. He has all this background in contract. No, he doesn't have any of that. 
No, and, and apparently the arbitration agreement itself, the provision about arbitration agreement was um, so small that the Court of Appeal had to use a magnifying glass to read it. And the Court of Appeal says this. They say it is impossible to read without a magnifying glass. It's not that the plaintiff said it was impossible to read without a magnifying The Court of Appeal is saying it's impossible to read without a magnifying glass. But if you blow it up by 150 percent, you get to start reading the agreement. And uh, aside from the by now, you should know procedural and unconscionability. You have some substantive unconscionability once you start actually reading it. Right. So there's a number of problems here that the court points out about why the arbitration agreement is void and beyond just the procedural and substantive uh, unconscionability. One of the things they point out that the um, there was it was not clear and unmistakable who would decide unconscionability in the contract. Right. That's one of the first things that the defendant here argues. They say, no, the question of whether or not it's unconscionable should be decided by the arbitrator. There's a provision uh, in the agreement that says that. And it's always suspect to me when a um, when a defendant is telling the court, you can't decide this. The arbitrator has to decide. You can't decide this. The arbitrator has to decide. this. And in the very provision that says, look, that's actually what they're arguing would be fine if the agreement, California law says that argument is fine if the agreement unequivocally makes it very clear that the arbitrator is going to decide that. But the provision in this contract that says that the arbitrator decides that is followed specifically by in a provision that says if something seems unconscionable, you can sever it. The court of competent jurisdiction can sever it. And the court here goes, yeah, we're severing it. And and now an arbitrator can't decide that. So that argument's thrown out. But then you get into the substantive unconscionability. Number one is lack of mutuality. Um, it's one sided. It doesn't work. It, it doesn't work bilateral. It's totally unilateral. It, it only protects the uh, right. So, again, the company. The, the- the procedural unconscionability is easily met here because it's a contract of adhesion. It's a take it or leave it basis. Uh, and I that mean, seems shit, I would to argue be, the font itself is, is, is a reason to find it procedural. Absolutely. But anyway, yeah. And then um, this is a great one to look out for in these arbitration cases, which is lack of mutuality. Yeah. So it's the plaintiffs, but not the defendants who had to arbitrate. And the defendants never even had to sign this agreement. Right. And so they're binding somebody to an arbitration agreement that they're not bound to themselves. So that's unfair. And then there were, again, we get into limitations on a defendant's liability. Right. There's a cap on damages. But it's not a severe cap, is it, Sean? No, 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 it is. It turns out it is. You can't get any consequential, incidental. And it's only, by the way, one-sided. Again, the customer can't get any consequential, incidental, indirect, punitive, or special damages. So all you can get is like the price of the, the stupid coins Just that you pay for. Ridiculous. Yeah. Just get your money back. That's yeah, all you just it, get yeah. a refund on the dumb coins. Then they had a limitation on the statute of limitations, which again, we fall into financial elder abuse, the financial elder abuse right. statute. And it's a four-year statute, a, right, right? A four-year and what, statute. And limited to what, three years or something? One year. One year. Yeah, yeah that's, that one that's year. just disgusting. I mean, it, it's just wild that they try to even do this. Um, and then look, but if there's problems with an arbitration agreement, you can sever some of that stuff out. So is that what the court does here? No, nope, because the court said it's it's so it's so infected. It's so bad. You can't save this arbitration agreement, yeah. which, you know, would be ridiculous if you could. I mean, in the, under these. So those three cases make the case for why. Nope, we, we haven't done the third case yet, Sean. Oh, I we, know we you haven't. have a problem oh, oops, counting. Oops, okay. It's OK. That's only two. That's only That's two. That's only two. One, two, We're going to cover Brooks versus Home, which is out of my favorite division of the second DCA, Division 6, who write the shortest, most concise opinions, yeah. which is great when you're reading them, right? Yeah, this is actually really good. It's a well-written opinion. Hey, this is an equally important case and also equally favorable um, for those of us that don't like arbitration. In this case, 
you had a fellow who decided was an employee, I guess, of this company, Amerihome Mortgage Company, Brooks versus Amerihome Mortgage. Amerihome Mortgage employee, he decides to file basically a PAGA action, right? Right. So the first thing he does is he sends, and you have to do this, you have to send a PAGA letter. You have to advise the state and the defendant that you would like to step into the shoes of the state and act as a private attorney general and seek penalties against a company. And he does that here. He sends a letter. In response, Amerihome, the defendant, uh, decides to institute arbitration against. before right before the actions even filed. Before, right? before they the they send a letter yep. demanding arbitration. Yep. And by the way, an important thing to note here in the Paga letter, the plaintiff says that he's going to be seeking wages allowed under the code and penalties. So that becomes relevant a little bit later. Um, so Amerihome files a demand for arbitration. And then the defend, uh, the plaintiff here, when they file their complaint, uh, after waiting the proper amount of time, after giving notice, they file their complaint and they do something really smart. They file one cause of action. And right. it's simply for PAGA. That's PAGA. it. There's Just nothing else. There's no, we've no seen complaints before where there's individual claims and PAGA claims, and that gets dicey in what the court does with the PAGA claim while the individual claims are in arbitration. But here he has no individual claims, not one. Just PAGA claims, just penalties, no wages. And Amara Holmes' argument is, well, it doesn't matter because he might have individual claims. Right. And to so, the extent he might have them, we, we get the right to arbitrate that. And, and the plaintiff does something very smart here procedurally after he files the lawsuit because, you know, it's already they've already tried to compel arbitration or tried to institute arbitration. So he files a request for a uh, injunction. And, and the court ultimately enjoins the arbitration and says, no, you can't move forward with that. So I thought that was really clever. And, and they evaluate the case in the context of the standard for a preliminary injunction, which is likelihood of success, the likelihood to prevail on the merits and uh, the interim harm that would occur. Those are basically the standards. Right. And then the court looks at PAGA and says, look, there's all these cases, including Iskanian and, and, and Zakarian and others which specifically talk about the fact that PAGA is not an arbitrable claim. You cannot arbitrate it. Then they look at Williams, which says that a single cause of action under PAGA can't be split into arbitrating the individual claims and you know non-arbitral. You can't split it. It's a single cause of action. And the court says that's the rule that should apply here. Right. The trial court described it as a pure PAGA claim. And that's all there is. And they say, but but their argument, because they won't give up, is, hey, listen, this former employee of ours alleged individual specific labor code violations. So I think in, that gets in the, back to in what the you're letter. talking yeah. about. The He's like, wait, in the Paga letter, he wants he he was alleging individual specific labor code violations. He in the Paga letter, he said he's going to seek damages. And the court says that doesn't matter. That doesn't matter because it's the complaint that controls, not the Paga notice, not the Paga letter that gets sent out. So ultimately, uh, he, they can't proceed with arbitration. Right. I mean, you know, these are just just shows you how much they want to get out of arbitration. So let's go to our final case today. So now we've talked about ways to keep the case out of arbitration. And now we're going to talk and about why it should be kept out of arbitration. Right. Yeah. And now we're going to talk about what happens when you get an arbitration award and you're unhappy with the arbitration award, as often happens, because in our, I guess when you go to a final judgment in arbitration, there's a winner and a loser. It was there, really? Yeah. Is that what happens? Yeah. Yeah, yeah of course. Um, and no right of appeal in most arbitrations. Right. But there are narrow circumstances where you can Very challenge narrow. the award, Very have it vacated. Narrow. And this case kind of illustrates what those circumstances are. But uh, let's start with the name. It's VVA-2 LLC versus Impact Development Group LLC. As you can tell, these are both some type of business entity. This comes from the second DCA, originates in Los Angeles Superior Court. 
Um, so this, we won't get into the details about the facts. It's super complicated. It's a real estate deal. And ultimately what happens when they go to arbitration is the arbitrator awards specific performance. And I believe what the real dispute here is the losing party says, um, the arbitrator had no right to award specific performance. It wasn't called for. So that's really what it focuses on. But we thought it was an important case to discuss because the, the first thing that to take away from this case, and they'll remember, is how hard it is to get an arbitrator's award set aside. Very limited grounds. For example, um, the arbitration award fails to fully determine the questions submitted. Right. It doesn't resolve the issues that were the, the controversy that was there. So that's one ground, I guess. Right. The arbitrators exceeded their power and the award cannot be corrected without affecting the merits of the decision. Uh, that's another ground. And uh, I think that's basically what they're working off of here. And then the rights of the party were substantially prejudiced by the refusal of the arbitrator to hear evidence. An example of that shot would be you know, there's some smoking gun piece of evidence that you have and the judge refuses to even consider it, doesn't look at it and go, well, I don't care about that. I don't find it. He just totally throws it out, refuses to consider it. So something like that. Uh, you need real egregious beha- behavior on. Uh, and even the then, you may not be able to vacate right. the entire award. You may right. only be able to vacate the part that's affected by those defects. And I will note that as a side note that uh, our entire arbitration can be set aside if the arbitrator uh, failed to properly disclose the relationships or the parties failed to disclose relationships, or that really goes to the core of the selection of the arbitrator. So very, very narrow once it gets, and then there's fraud and that's really tough. You've got to establish some kind of fraud. So in this case though, um, they're arguing about the remedy and what, what specifically happened here with the remedy. And they were saying, well, specific performance wasn't specifically called out for. And what the court said is you don't have to specifically have a remedy called out for in the arbitration. In fact, the court says as long as it's not prohibited in the arbitration agreement, uh, the court or the arbitrator can award whatever he or she wants so long as there's some rational relationship between the remedy and the contract. So the the party seeking vacatur of the award here is arguing, well, the contract doesn't allow for specific performance. This goes beyond the contract. And the court says, look, the California Supreme Court has said that as long as there's some rational relationship, that's fine as long as the arbitration agreement doesn't preclude it. If the arbitration agreement here said no specific performance, they might have a winning argument for vacature, but but it doesn't. So it doesn't prohibit it. So as long as there's some rational relationship, you, the arbitrator can do it. There is a dissent in this case by Justice Cheney, who's terrific, and uh, I've known her and her legal mind. So I read the dissent, and, and basically what it comes down to is a disagreement between the dissent and the majority in this case about whether or not this remedy that the arbitrator awarded exceeded the type of remedy that was called out for in the contract. So that really comes down to almost like a quasi-factual determination that the court makes. So the bottom line is arbitration, very tough to get out of. But but this case is good. This case illustrates what type of dispute arbitration is appropriate for. You know, two companies, real estate deal gone bad. This is probably a more efficient way of resolving a case than going to court and having a jury that's not sophisticated in these matters or a judge that's not sophisticated in matters decide the dispute. So first three cases show why consumers should not be subject to arbitration clauses and all the gamesmanship that goes goes on. And this case shows why, you know, this is a good venue for resolving sophisticated disputes. So that's all we got today. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope that it was informative. Uh, We're always interested in your feedback. Please stay tuned. Tell them where they can find us. They can find us online at kbklawyers.com. We appreciate your feedback. Please reach out, get in touch with us. And uh, thanks for tuning in.